yoga itself, war yoga, has this premise that ultimately for a warrior society, a male warrior culture, the qualities that would come out from a physical practice, which also is a spiritual practice, would prepare them for battle, for fighting. As I said, when we, when we first met, I found you on Instagram, War Yoga, obviously immediately hit follow. Um, I thought your thing was more about like the Indian training techniques. So I got your book and was pleasantly surprised that it was actually more philosophy, mythology, history, which was really cool. And, and last time we spoke, we were, we were just getting into it on how for I think people in West, the Western interpretation of yoga, war yoga might seem like an oxymoron. Um, so yeah. could you speak a little bit about where this term came from and the basis for it? Yeah, sure. Of course. So um, war yoga finds uh, its foundation really in uh, the very, so the most ancient Indo-European uh, sources, which ultimately is the Indian uh, Rig Veda. Uh, and in the Rig Veda, there is um, the first mention of yoga. It's mentioned as yoga kashema, which means a harmonious adjustment, actually, in that setting. I think it's in like Rig Veda hmm. 7 something. It's in the seventh uh, volume of the Rig Veda. Um, and then... Um, so the Rig Veda ultimately is uh, a book uh, used by uh, of a, a sort of nomadic, violent, cattle raiding culture of, of a warrior culture, you know, that venerated above all, really, the god Indra. And I talk about that in the book. Um, but they're essentially a sort of cattle warrior culture. So the first mention of yoga is out of this context in terms of the word mm. yoga. The practices that were happening in the Indian subcontinent, uh, either before or after that, are sort of separate in that regard from the word. I mean, they, you know, there's evidence that things were happening in, um, you know, uh, you know, pre-Vedic India, of sort of along the lines of yogic style posture postures and so on. But um, mm. yeah, this idea that uh, we have in the West is that yoga is this kind of very peaceful and breathe and come and that, there's nothing wrong with that that's all great i mean you know i i did yoga i I'll still do some yoga sometimes i you know, modern yoga but i mean even the term itself uh hatha yoga means violent yoga it's yeah that's an interesting factoid because i had a, a hatha yoga teacher who would, his like his catchphrase was make sure you're making love to your body not war on your body and he would say this like every class and i was like oh, i wonder what he would think if he knew the meaning of hatha, <laughs> you know? yeah, hatha right exactly violent yeah. yoga the, the, the Nathsid, as you know, uh, medieval Nathsid. But yeah, so essentially the premise of war yoga is that um, for a warrior culture, and especially a male warrior culture, that uh, you would actually, you know, it's kind of funny because yoga, of course, is these days dominated by women, which is just goes with the territory, really. Um, that, you know, there's a minority of men in sort of modern yoga, but yoga itself, war yoga, has this premise that ultimately for a warrior society, a male warrior culture, that the qualities that would come out from a physical practice, which also is a spiritual practice, would prepare them for battle, for fighting. Um, and so, of course, in ancient times, that was hand-to-hand -hand warfare with maces and swords, you know, all sorts. 
Um, and then you could kind of transfer that in modern culture to the martial arts for wrestling, which is exactly what sort of happened in India with the um, evolution, let's say, of the um, of the yogic uh, concepts into uh, Vyayam, which was the which is the very old, very ancient um, Indian wrestlers' strength and conditioning regimen. And in fact, what's really interesting is to go full circle. So if you go look at yoga, originally the sort of yoga that someone like Patanjali is talking about is mostly sort of stillness of being physically still in these kind of very long extended kind of poses fairly in, in a lot of sort of asceticism, like fairly lengthy, unpleasant places to be in terms of physicality so that your mind can be tamed, you know, and then put into union with the divine yoked to the divine. Um, the modern yogic practices, and particularly if we look at something like the Surya Namaskar, the sun salutation, that's first codified. And so the idea of sun salutation is extremely ancient, extremely, extremely ancient, but there's no codified practice of it. It was just literally some kind of way of greeting the sun that maybe with some kind of prayer and motion, but there's, there was no codification as far as we're aware until, and it's not, not what we do now, the modern one at least anyway and that like came about up, basically that, well that came about from a guy called the the raja of aund he was a raja in india in the late 19th century and there's a there's a few it's kind of interesting the indian rajas and maharajas got kind of interested in the physicality that was in vyayam for the wrestlers but wanted to sort of add something to it or just do some of the more gentle things and so the raja of aund did surya nam he wrote a book it was released in the maybe 1912 or something around there. I can't remember what, but called the Sur Surya Namaskar, the 12 steps to health and something or other. And that's the Surya Namaskar we do today. But mm. what's interesting is, is that he drew the downward dog and the upward dog from Vyayam, from the restless exercises of the Dand, uh, the Dand, which does both the downward and upward dog, but in a much more dynamic hmm. and push-up sort of style. I thought it was the other way around. I, I just assumed it was the other way around. No, yeah, exactly. Heard, a lot of people assume it's the other way around, but actually yeah. it is, it's the other way, that it comes from the rest hmm. of the exercises. And actually, for those who don't know, that's the, what we commonly call the Hindu push-up in the West these days. Yes, the um, Dand, yeah, the Dand. Yeah, Dand actually, actually means punishment rod. Huh. In, uh, in, in, so it's like the idea of being punished with the exercise. It's the asceticism, I guess. Are you familiar with the guy Matt Fury? I am familiar with Matt Fury to okay. some degree. I, I've I've not met him, but I've sort of I've known yeah. of him for a while. I'm pretty sure he's the guy who coined the term Hindu squat, Hindu push up for the for the Baitak and Dand. I'm not sure. Yeah, probably. I'm pretty sure that's the case though, because I f started following him. And the only reason why I know about these exercises is that when I started wrestling in high school he was putting out his sales pages for like his yeah. you know, Indian wrestling based strength programs. That was like pre-social media, the, the long sales pages, you know, and yeah, he made yeah. a lot of claims that people found out weren't true. Like he said he worked, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, yeah. uh, he said he uh, trained with Carl Gotch who invented cash wrestling, but then Carl Gotch never heard of him and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. But, but during that time, I, I, I took his program to heart and I was doing like, I was wrestling in high school and I was doing hundreds of Hindu squats, Hindu pushups. It's like my yeah. only thing. And only recently, and then, you know, once things came out about him, I kind of stopped doing it, but only recently have I realized how like all encompassing and great those two exercises are like oh, yeah. for need strength. And, you know, only recently with, um, 
Ben Patrick, knees over toes guy. I don't know yeah. if you're familiar. His stuff has become Absolutely. really popular about yeah. sending your knee over your toes. I'm like, well, that's basically the Hindu squat. Exactly. I, it's the better. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which is extremely beneficial. Like, so last year I actually did uh, 108 every day, which isn't, is minimal hmm. compared to what the Indian wrestlers do. They'll do yeah. hundreds of them every day. Um, but I did 108 every day and then supplement a little bit more to make. So I did 40,000 betaks last year. Whoa. Uh, and that's <laughs> partly inspired by uh, somebody who was actually a big follower of knees over toes guy and was saying, oh, wow, you know, the betaks is the original knees over toes. And that, yeah. you know, uh, it's really good for your knee health. So I was like, well, I, I grapple. I'm 43 years old now and you know, I don't, I've never had a knee injury so far, touch wood. And I was just like, man, I should just do, make sure I always, always, always do Betax every day just yeah. for my knee health, you know? Yeah, your book actually got me doing them again. I was like, I oh, wasn't great. doing them very, yeah, because uh, I remember in high school, I was, I was really into wrestling. I was terrible at basketball. But when I did play with my friends, everyone would comment about how high I jumped. Yeah. And I didn't know why. And then uh, later on, I think I read some weightlifting thing, how you should never send your knees over your toes. And some, somewhere along the lines, I lost my jumping ability. Yeah. And I was like, oh, oh maybe wow. it was actually the Hindu squats. Yeah, <laughs> I was also was. much younger yeah, right. then. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's great. Um, I actually want to ask, I, I just thought of this now because I know you've, you, you've done Muay Thai in Thailand for a long yeah. time. You've done many different martial arts in different countries. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, something I've been really fascinated about, and maybe you're the only person I could talk about this with is the cultural, I guess, movement patterns you see in different martial arts. Like in Greece, obviously a certain type of wrestling was emphasized where they, you know, if you look at martial arts in that part of the world, kicking for whatever reason wasn't emphasized. And then yeah. in Thailand, I, I think I read this somewhere that the the Thai round kick, which kind of defines Muay Thai, came from the fact that they fought with short swords, which they swung like yeah. the kick. And that's where they got the idea to throw those high power, relatively yeah. slow kicks. I was wondering if you had any insight on that, because I've, I've trained in a few different countries. I've trained in different martial arts. And I noticed that, say, in India... There's this, uh, there's certain patterns you see consistent with Indian wrestling and yoga, Tai Chi and Wing Chun. And even the way some, some Chinese MMA fighters fight seems to be informed by these movement patterns. Yeah, I can, I can, I can see that. Um, definitely. I mean, of course, at one, on one side, there is just that there are fundamental human movements, which are just like work with the human body. But yeah, I mean, that's correct. The ties fight the way they do because it comes out of their battlefield style. Uh, mm -hmm. that they they use these swords i've actually done the original martial art of thailand is called krabby krabong mm -hmm. uh, it's with swords and staffs and sword staffs and all that kind of stuff and um it, the movement that is from that which is much more formal actually um became moi baran which is the ancient well, Moi means to fight, so Boran means mm -hmm. old, ancient. So it's like the ancient fighting style, which was used on the battlefield when you ran out of weapons and you just had nothing and you had to just try and kill people with your bare hands. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that ultimately became Muay Thai. But that movement pattern comes out of that deep kind of history of Thai, uh, Thai movement patterns from the battlefield, which they fought with two swords, like kind of... Yeah. They're kind like of like two shins, shin, almost. Yeah, yeah right, <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and actually, even now, well, the interesting thing is, I describe to my students now that you strike with the bottom of your shin, which is like the tip of the sword, and mm. you block with the top of your shin by your knee, which is the, like the base. Close of the to the hilt. Yeah, it's exactly. It's exactly right. That's exactly right. And um, yeah, I don't. I mean, 
yeah, there's a cultural pattern to everything in terms of um, of certain movements. I know that, uh, of course, in India, there's several because you've got the sort of the Kushti wrestling, which comes out of um, in original Indian wrestling and then a kind of synthesis with some of the Iranian uh, wrestlers that came over during the Mughal period. And there's another the resynthesis at that time. Um, and then in the South, you've got things like Kalari Payatu, where... Uh, which is really deeply ancient martial art with a lot of spinning and jumping and uh, lots of very dynamic and kind of to our eyes in the West, at least very strange movements because hmm. they are um, from a time when they come out of, again, a time when people fought with maces like the Gada, you know, like hmm. the, the, the mace, but it was like not the exercise Gada from India, the huge, you know, big stone on a, on a bamboo pole, but like a smaller kind of, this size kind mm -hmm. of gather again so i'm trying to stay out the light yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah there's definitely a this i would say there's definitely a cultural uh element to movement certainly yeah because i've also read somewhere that um greco-roman wrestling those techniques came from when hoplites would lose their weapons you're not going to die for someone's legs you're not going to kick them because you're, you're in plated armor but you might well, grab so their upper body it's kind of interesting because Greco, Greco is really from France in terms of the modern hmm. sport of Greco. It, it's sort of meant to be based on the ancient Greek, but the ancient Greek wrestlers definitely went for legs, but they didn't shoot in the same way because hmm. um, the rules of uh, ancient Greek wrestling, similar to sumo, were that if any part of your body... Oh, no, I, that's not right, actually. I'm wrong. It... If, if if any part of the back touched the floor, then you then you mm -hmm. you know it's just just actually a lot like modern kushti. Um, if any part of the back touched the ground, then you lost that, and you had three you had three falls to win, you know. But um, hmm. there was definitely an emphasis on upper body wrestling, certainly, and Greco emphasised that entirely and took out leg attacks completely. But the ancient Greeks did go for leg attacks, but I don't think they shot. I'm gotcha. not entirely sure why. I'm actually going to be deep into research on the ancient Greek martial arts coming is, up. Is that so. the third in the Warrior Yoga the, series? Well, that's my, uh, yeah, basically, <laughs> that's my that's the third step. Because, you know, War Yoga is trying to trace this kind of Indo-European heritage above the whole thing, this kind of super ancient thing that connects together asia and europe basically because mm -hmm. the indo-europeans really i mean i know there's people that say oh they were european people went to asia went back but essentially they're they're uh, they were somewhere in central asia uh mm -hmm. in, in, you know and so the there's a really interesting tie of this group of warrior cattle people and so um the next thing is after india and i've just done iran is going to be greece it's going to cool. continue beyond that but cool that's very cool yeah, interesting um, but, to see more. But yeah, so I'm actually going to be deep into that phase because the Greeks had uh, three main fighting arts outside of just the warriors of the hoplites, which are just like as the athletic sports, which were they called mm -hmm. the heavy sports. And the three heavy sports were pale, which is wrestling, uh, pigmachia, which is boxing, and pankration, which was basically MMA. Gotcha. So cool. uh, it's kind of it's going to be an interesting interesting little set of research now for the next couple of years yeah nice nice um yeah yeah last bit on the on the martial arts thing i i've always found it really fascinating how even within boxing western european versus eastern europeans throw oh, yeah. the left hook so differently 
Yeah. And then you see like in Sambo, obviously they throw these casting punches, but then Russian boxers yeah. also, even Israeli boxers or any Eastern, yeah. European, Eastern European boxers throw these wide long hooks. And then people yeah. from England and America usually throw these tight hooks. I just found that really interesting. Why yeah. That is, yeah. Know? Well, so actually I've got a friend, uh, uh, Brett, who's down in Florida. He actually fights on one of these, on, uh, on some bare knuckle cards. Uh, he's fought mm. on BKFC and Valor BK. Um, but he has, so I taught him old English bare knuckle originally okay and uh he liked that and he fought under the london prize rules in a couple of little tournaments um a couple of little fights fights you know but then he has moved into soviet style boxing so he actually taught me a little bit about this so we in the west because of glove boxing have tended to sit in to sit into our punches and really hit try and hit hard and ground in and punch hard whereas the soviets actually took the old bare knuckle style which was actually used amongst the aristocracy and it kind of died out and then when the olympics started they wanted to get into amateur boxing which is points based so it doesn't matter about really knocking people out in the same way mm. it was about getting in and out and scoring shots and so ultimately the whole style developed from this fusion where they basically got these old guys who knew some of the old pugilistic bare knuckle from you know early early 20th century who are still around kind of teach a few of the other guys and essentially they developed a whole style out of this whole other lineage which was developed purely for the amateur but then translated really well into professional but hmm. with a completely different style so it's kind of it's kind of fascinating actually how that developed i'm not an expert on that but that's what i've been told and i found that really that's interesting, interesting. I, I read on an mma forum and you know i don't think this guy had any sources but someone was saying that um, in Russia, they punch the way they do because they're used to fighting on ice and like a casting <laughs> punch. You can, you can balance better than if you're throwing like a Mike Tyson tight hook. If you slip yeah, maybe, you're on your maybe. butt. I, I mean, that's <laughs> no, pretty, that's pretty, uh, it's pretty wild claim, but I mean, it's yeah. possible. I mean, yeah. the Persians, the Iranians, the reason they do their push up the way they do on a board is that it's, uh, from using from when they're out in, in, in the desert or in the sandy ground battlefields doing their exercises they'd put their sword on the ground their shamshir mm. as the to stop them sinking into the ground more and they'd spread their legs wide because it meant they didn't have to uh it would it would spread their weight more on a kind of fairly um you know a, a surface that gives way and mm. so that's the reason that the iranian push-up developed as it is apparently yeah Whenever you're done with this series, I would love if you made like a, a summary of all the different like. Maybe, <laughs> I, I almost want to see a chart of like the different. Yeah, that would be cool, punch, right? You know, yeah, cool. where they overlap. Yeah, um, just get take that out of my head and into reality. Yeah, yeah, but I've got to finish yeah. the whole series first. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> In some years, <laughs> yeah. So actually, so your your book was was more about. I mean, the first couple of chapters were almost like a manifesto, uh, yeah. kind of like anti modernity. Yeah, manifesto, which was really appealed to me. I was wondering if uh, that came from was that the intent when you went into war yoga, or was that just from reading the text? They all kind of there's a kind tradition of or... a bit of both, really. You know, you know, mm -hmm. you kind of go in with some of your own biases, and then you kind of find some of those biases confirmed. Um, and then there's <laughs> obviously you have to make sure you don't just only look for your confirmed biases. But you know, it tends to be that uh, I, I've always tended to have a pretty good feel when i go into something i've got an idea of where it might go um yeah no that that's that's that was my intent originally because um i feel we've lost something in this sort of unbridled modernity in which we live um mm -hmm. something which is really valuable and deep uh, we've lost a connection to uh, our roots 
uh, and to our, um, you know, to, to the true values that we sh we should we should have in some regards that um, we've kind of sold out to a kind of unbridled commercialism um, and convenience and sort of general softening of the human being and the human spirit, um, which um, which really is 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 sad because we are uh, with these sort of fairly resilient, strong creatures with um, an immense capability for uh, a lot of not just physical, but spiritually powerful things. You know, I mean, the, the Romans believe we stood upright. We're the only one that could stand upright and look upwards into divinity mm -hmm. out of all the creatures on the planet. You know, it's this, this idea that, um, you know, we are this essentially that there's as some of the traditionalist writers would say would be that you know we are we're sort of above and beyond the gods in that we are both being mortal we can suffer then we are also have the capability of divinity you know that hmm. we have both the earthly and the divine which makes us into something quite special and um the ancient texts seem to bear that out very much so um hmm. so far i've gone through uh, the ancient Indian texts uh, and uh, the Iranian text, the Avesta, and the various parts of the Avesta as well, uh, and even you know, and obviously some of the Islamic materials too, which especially the um, esoteric Islamic stuff, which comes out of Iran, which sticks, in, which really comes out of that Iranian tradition. Is that like then the it, Sufi stuff? The Sufi Sufi stuff, and actually particularly in the. So my second Warrior book, I particularly talk about the Illuminationists, Eshrakis, mm. uh, who are the um, there's a particularly the father of Illuminationism, a guy called Sohrawadi. Uh, he um, he he essentially took a lot of Zoroastrian and ancient pre-Zoroastrian concepts, and uh, he found Plato um, in sort of the Arabic text, where, where mm. Plato being kind of preserved in the Arabic uh, renderings of some of the things that came out of the library of alexandria and suddenly saw in plato exactly the things that he was thinking and so there's this kind of interesting, interesting. synthesis of platonic concepts uh, mixed in with zoroastrian concepts but then given like a sufi a, a view from a sufi opinion that, that's like about a thousand years after plato right if i'm yeah i mean so he was writing in pretty early islam actually so yeah about the sort of i think he was in the Tenth like eleven hundred, maybe yeah. But yeah. it's basically yeah, about it's about mm -hmm. it's, it's over a thousand years uh, after Plato. But he he found he found it. What's interesting is the fact that he found the Platonic writings and immediately understood them as being yeah. Oh, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Huh. And, and then, for him, that was him like going, you know, going anti modernity for his time was to right. go to Plato. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Go to Plato. Yeah. Right. Um, which is kind yeah. of interesting because that's essentially what the Neoplatonists did. That they. Uh, you know, people like uh, Iamblichus, he just, um, you know, they, they were like trying to write in the time of Christianity and they were trying to say, hey, you don't need this new Eastern religion because we've had all this stuff all along. Look, look at Plato, look at the Platonic stuff. You know, and they kind of made it a bit more mystic, you know, kind of mm, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And also bringing it to our time, like you see in the manosphere, men's personal development, the reject modernity meme, you mm -hmm. know, uh, it's, it's kind of this thing. A lot of, I think people are coming to on their own, whether they read history or not. And um, 
what one thing that stood out in in what you highlighted in the first war yoga book was the cattle raiders had a contempt for the settled peoples yes uh, which is like you know it's, it's 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 the same thing right like the settled peoples were the modern consumerists of their time Correct. i guess right. yeah. i mean actually i mean so i i've written uh aside from war yoga I wrote, i've written two books on greek greek mythology um and mm -hmm. the second one age of heroes actually is about the uh, homeric material odyssey and iliad and the iliad uh, it's exactly that. It's the it's the um, mobile warrior band of the Achaeans, the Greeks, against the urbanized Trojan city dwellers, the nomads versus the the city. Ultimately, is the real is the real depth of that mythology, which is obviously much it's much deeper than the Bronze Age setting it's in, but essentially is that idea of the you know yeah. And I think there's such like an dwellers. archetypal appeal for men of i guess any generation of that of like to be an outlaw whether it's like yeah. motorcycle gangs or organized yeah. crime like what teenage boy isn't drawn to that or or man of any age it's like you're not being constrained by the comforts and rules of society right right you know i, I mean and, and then that ultimately is the the real difficulties to find the balance somewhere between those two because you know you can't live your life as an outlaw entirely because you will you'd be shunned by society and suffer. And, you know, ultimately, you know, if you are really getting into the deep outlaw, you know, you can end up being getting into some serious legal trouble. But mm -hmm. if you are able to harness that kind of outlaw slash, you know, nomadic warrior energy and be able to put that into, uh, into where we are now, because the thing is, is we can't control our environment too much. You know, we, we are where we are. The world is where it is. Now, what we can do, obviously, it's very stoic ultimately in that regard, I guess, is that, you know, you can control yourself and your own way of being. So the difficulty and the real challenge ultimately is to somehow find a way where you can walk, as I think it's in the Mahabharata, like walk the razor's edge, you know, to be able to, uh, or as Julius Evola would say, to ride the tiger, you know, to somehow use this modern world as a vehicle of transcendence of your own you know where you can kind of like be in the world but not of the world hmm. you know to kind of be so you can't be kind of completely aloof and out of it you've still got to live in it but somehow you've got to disconnect from the things which are kind of toxic and harmful that are in modernity and in modern life, you know? So it's like to sit the meme, of course, reject modernity is it's like, it, yeah, sure. But like, but what are you offering in, in, uh, as a substitute for modernity, you know? And so, you know, that's where the traditionalists are kind of interesting people like Gwynon and Evola, but you know, the, there's got to be sort of level of personal, um, accountability and personal discovery and that that's one of the things about war yoga is the idea that you know you have to basically kind of forge your own path ultimately you have to kind of like you know here's some here's a map right here's the ancient texts here's the ancient philosophy here's a map how you have to navigate it yeah yeah sometimes i feel like even with my own personal philosophy there's a bit of irony or maybe i contradict or i don't know maybe not contradiction but like I grew up in the West in middle class and I choose to go to places to do farm work, but I don't have to. It's like I, I, a lot of what you see on Instagram with stuff that I, that I resonate with. It's like, you're choosing to do manual labor just yeah. because it's good for you. Right. It's but no, no one's forced to. Thing. It's a noble thing. It's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So actually, so one thing about the spiritual uh, aspect that I found very interesting in your book was, um, I think it was a Pantajali quote, something about yogins must consider the gods as their enemy. Ah, yeah. 
yeah, yeah. If, if you could speak on that, because it was one of those things. It was like, oh, that's uh, definitely a big reframe from every other religious or spiritual viewpoint I've seen. Maybe I'm misunderstanding it. But no, no, no. I mean, no, that's correct. So the idea is um, is that in order to fully ascend, you have to go beyond the gods, and the gods don't like that. They don't like the idea of somebody surpassing them. You know, that's why the ancient Greek gods punish hubris, you know, the idea of trying to mimic the gods or copy the gods. And so there's an idea that ultimately we are here and we have to not only we have to you have to honor the gods in the sense you don't want to upset them. But at the same time, the gods can mean like gods or it can mean divine forces or, you know, um, you know, the kind of you know, however you want to kind of think of that, really. But that the gods don't want human beings to surpass them, to go beyond them. They definitely don't want human beings to become gods. The gods are your enemy in that regard. But at the same time, you have to consider them your enemy while at, without angering them, without incurring the wrath of the gods. And this is the ancient, this is actually um, the, the Indian concepts there, which is why they have this idea of Ati Deva, which is to go beyond the gods, beyond Deva. Um, which is a capability of the human being because we have this divine spark within us, which is the Atman in the Indian tradition. So you have this, and the Iranians have this idea of the manifold soul with the various parts, um, uh, the soul, the spirit, and then the female part of the spirit. Um, and so there's this whole sort of alchemical idea of this pathway of becoming more than a god to become an immortal spirit of some description, to become an immortal to... So there's the idea it's in Platonism. So the Greeks have it, the Iranians have it, the Indians have it, like most Indo-European traditions have it. It's the idea that you can, that you, as your, let's talk about it in Indian terms, the Atman can, uh, after death, will rejoin uh, Brahman, the unity, the cosmic unity, so that your divine part will join again with God or the divine. Now, there's a path which is laid out in a lot of the esoteric traditions where you can basically make your Atman become independent and go beyond and become like this kind of what the Indians would call Chakravartin, the lord of the wheel, the lord at the center, which is beyond time and space and all all the, and the platonic, platonic concept being sort of beyond the platonic spheres and maybe the tenth sphere, you know. Uh, beyond the octad and non-ad into the tenth sphere. Um, so there's this, this sort of idea that there is a capability of the human being to create this adamantine immortal spirit, but that the gods don't want that. So you have to fight against them in that regard. They're your enemy in the regard they'll put things in your way to stop you achieving them. So is it almost like, um, like making an analogy to an athlete with a really terrorizing coach who's like constantly putting up you know, the yeah, huge right, yeah. next rep and you're, you're trying to beat him, but not really beat him, let's say. Yeah. Like no, no, right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Kind of, that's kind of an interesting way of putting it, actually. And then that ultimately that coach really in his heart of hearts wants you to surpass him. That's why he's uh -huh. so terrorizing to you. I guess that's an interesting way of looking at it. I hadn't thought about it that way, huh. but I like it. Yeah. I was just trying to make it make sense. Cause I, I mean, I'm not religious. Sometimes I dabble with spiritual ideas, but even this thought was sure. like, I almost feel like it almost feels like blasphemous in my head to to even think this way. And I don't I don't know if I don't know if it's like just monotheistic culture has like gotten into me or even Maybe. in yoga classes it's like it's all about surrender and trusting the universe and 
you know, right. 12 step is about surrendering to a higher power. It's like to think right. of the divine as an enemy. Yeah. Well, that's the idea as well. Cause so, so the ancient Greeks had the concept that fate, uh, and mm-hmm. also rules the gods, but then, you know, I like to think of the concept of fate that, okay, you have maybe fate, but you can't be purely fatalist and just sit back and allow everything just to happen to you. So you can't purely surrender in that regard, but what you can do is say fate is like a river you can swim with the stream not against it but you can swim you know you can make your way to places where you want to be so you can take control of your fate to a remarkable degree but you just can't go against against it you know so it's like Hmm. that so the idea of surrender of pure surrender is kind of uh tricky for me because i think you know okay yeah you can kind of surrender to the divine surrender to the universe surrender to the you know cosmic plan for you or whatever it is but then i think you really need to take hold of you know take hold of the reins of the chariot of your life and just ride that chariot you know yeah yeah actually it's make me think like the monotheistic framework of you know the almighty singular power i mean this is not an original idea of mine but like the rise of monotheism kind of rose with the solidification of you know what we call civilization have you read anything by James Scott by any chance? No, I haven't. Okay. He writes a lot about how, um, you know, even in the Bronze Age, 95% of people didn't live in civilization. They were actually nomads, but they didn't write yeah. history. So we don't think of that. And he has a Correct. lot of things on that. But now I'm thinking about like the psychology maybe of um, monotheistic religion kind of treats the divine as like a parent and you're a toddler in the way, in the way yeah. you see the language. Whereas polytheistic religions... You're kind of like a kid and the gods are teenagers. They can just do a little more than you, but they're yeah. also well, subject yeah, kind of, to fate, kind of, let's say. <laughs> I mean, I've definitely heard the idea that, you know, to try and put all human experience into one divine being is sort of like schizophrenia. You know, <laughs> multiple personalities in a single being, which, which, which mm-hmm. you know, like I understand that too, because that's sort of like it's strange, you know, because with polytheism, you know, you had a different God for each different thing in a different aspect. Okay. Yeah. So this is going on or this is going on. So I have to go and see, you know, pray to this God or something like that. But then ultimately you can also say that all of the ancient gods are aspects of the divine, you know, it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be a single God figure, but there could be this idea of the divine of divinity of that, which is holy and that those are all different uh, avatars you know, yeah. manifestations. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, it just made me think of, um, you know, the monotheistic framework kind of fits in with the modernity framework of, let's say, surrendering to the state and not questioning the culture. Correct. Whereas like this kind of, uh, I guess, seeing the God as gods as an enemy potentially is a way of like maintaining serenity as a, as a nomad who's not going to be controlled by yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely uh. indomitable spirit. You know, the 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 absolute refusal to be uh, to be controlled in all aspects of your life because that's that's not good. I mean, you know, there has to be some elements of self rule. You know, especially mm-hmm. over your own self and being. I mean, when a authoritarian state comes in and tells you how to. Yeah, sort of micromanages every element of your life. I mean, then are you living or are you just sort of surviving as a sort of state chattel or slave? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, can I ask you about your spiritual views? Because I, I, I listened to your podcast episode on, um, I'm forgetting the name of the podcast, but your friend in Tennessee. Oh, um, Joe. Yeah. 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 New podcast. Yeah. 
and it sounded like you guys did some sort of like pagan ritual yeah. or, or yeah, I'm yeah, curious, yeah. I'm curious about that. <laughs> so that ultimately ties into, so a lot of those guys, there are actually Germanic pagans. I'm not a Germanic mm-hmm. pagan. Um, but the, um, the, ultimately what it is, is, is there's a strain runs through all the Indo-European, uh, culture, warrior culture, this sort of idea of the wolf, the wolf cult, the wolf warrior cult. Uh, and so, um, a lot of, actually uh where i come from um so originally i come from a buddhist background so i mean hmm. well originally i come from a non-religious background uh my father's atheist kind of uh, and my mother's greek orthodox uh but i never really considered myself christian because i was never told never made to go to church or anything like that um and then i discovered buddhism so i was then uh i found that f- absolutely amazing extremely powerful and that's still that actually through being in thailand that remains a major part of of the way i see things because i just think that's just a wonderful way because i don't want to think of it as necessarily religion it's not a philosophy it's a way you know it's a sort of neither one nor the other but both at the same time you know um so buddhism's like really informed a lot of where i've come from but um the the, the essentially the wolf the what they call the wolf cult um is uh the um initiatic esoteric uh tradition of the the warrior band um the indo-european warrior band now the thing is is like you know everything is sort of reconstructive in mm-hmm. in most regards because the tradition was broken um but you can see you know, even up until the 19th century and early 20th century, there's there's still evidence of the of the wolf the wolf cult ultimately existing um, even within the framework of Christianity. Um, so it's something which was like sort of outside of specific religions, so to speak. But ultimately, that's what you see at the heart of the Rig Veda. Even the other Vedas, even the Sama Veda or the Atharva Veda, has some stuff in there um, about that. Uh, the Vratyas in the Atharva Veda are uh, essentially wolf cultists. Um, hmm. The uh, Iranian tradition, the Avesta, has the same in there about the the wolves with two legs, it talks about. Um hmm. So there's this kind of idea of this warrior tradition, which is kind of like, you know, the war yoga idea too, of, you know, initiatic physical and metaphysical culture, you know, that the, there is, um, a, uh, physical and spiritual synthesis, uh, which can prepare, uh, people for, uh, to be basically to be able to walk more powerfully through life and it was particularly for men and it was uh you see all the ancient cultures had this idea the ancient greeks the uh, athenians had the um a phoebe so uh when you were maybe 17 years old in athens in classical greece you still had to go off into the wilderness for a couple of years if you're part of the sort of uh aristocracy or the high you know the at the, the warrior class, caste, basically, warrior class, they would have to go off into the wilderness for a couple of years and live as like kind of hunters on the edge of society, defending the borders against uh, enemies, raiding enemy territories, like to take their sh- cattle and stuff. Um, hmm. And so a lot of what I do, a lot of my perspective comes from that and trying to reconstruct that, but then without just cosplaying it. You know, mm-hmm. without just kind of being like, oh, this is just a cosplay, 
you know and so that's kind of what when i when i do go and see those guys down there it's like a, a ability to be able to sort of on some level try and express that outwardly but like i said i originally I mean really i mean even now today i'll say i'm a, I'm a buddhist because i think that tradition there comes out of a similar current you know i mean the buddha if you read the hagiographies about him he he was a warrior comes from the warrior class he's not from the priestly class he comes from the warrior class and the, the entire concept of buddhism ultimately comes from a, a warrior class ruling class perspective but you know the ruling class were warrior class you know so you know this idea that you know these sort of fights and you know the the concept of the inner holy war which is what i explore in the uh second war yoga book you know, these are these are these come out of a warrior tradition, out of initiatic warrior tradition, and that's sort of where the wolf cult lies. That hmm. um, the wolf is totemic, you know, because it works. It's fast. It's cunning. It's strong, but it works best as a pack. You know, even if you look at the Spartans, their law comes from their their you know a go Their training is all about working together as a team. That there's a famous quote uh, from a, or a king of Sparta who was actually defected to Persia. Uh, was talking was uh, advising Xerxes, and he said that the Spartan alone uh, is just the same as any other fighter. But you put them together, and they're unstoppable because they work mm-hmm. as a team. And that's where the wolf comes in, because even the lawgiver of Sparta was called Lycurgus, which is the wolf. Hmm. Um, so you can even see, like you know, through um, the etymologies of things, that there's this kind of wolf always in the background somewhere you know, just by names or little small pieces of evidence. And so kind of that's, that's where I come from at a personal spiritual level. And I mean, just basic question are, were wolves in all of these parts of the world that they could be used? No, so that's where it's interesting. So Mm. some parts, yes. Um, but right. It's, it's Northern. It comes from somewhere else. It comes from the Indo-Europeans who Mm. were somewhere more North than now. And actually, if you look at, for example, the, um, the the Vedas and the Avesta in particular as ancient texts, this, the most ancient texts really of from the, that entire Indo-European group of people, they are talking about things that aren't in the setting that we the books come from, that the, the literature comes mm. from. Like it talks about like um, these winters where it's like ten months of dark and two months of light and it talks about these things where they've moved down from somewhere else and it's like even the the goddess anahita in uh in the iranian tradition wears beaver fur well Hmm. beaver there's no beavers in iran i mean those are from somewhere much further north on the planet and so there's this idea of the wolf has made its way into places where there were not wolves now of course in europe there were wolves so the you know that was fine but like in in iran and and india i mean i'm not entirely sure but i don't think there are wolves in those areas and so somehow though the wolf remained interesting well i think there are wolves in india because i remember there's that story from i think 100 years ago where some girls were raised by wolves maybe oh yeah and i mean and i guess like in uh in the jungle book uh he talks about the wolves, although that is Rudyard Kipling. I'm not entirely sure where his, but yeah. he was, you know, I mean, he, he, he definitely tried to kind of keep it within, 
Yeah. We also see like uh, like lion symbolism in in England where you know obviously there's more right. lions there. Right. Correct. Where and... we didn't have them. Right. No, there yeah. so the, there were lions kind of right around like Barbary lions or something but they kind of disappeared like a very very not in, they weren't in England but they were definitely towards Europe but they were they disappeared huh. a long long time before. But yeah. yeah. The wolf, I didn't know the there was migration sort of totemic symbol. I mean it's like there's three animals that were totemic amongst the uh, particularly European branch of the Indo-European people, which is the wolf, the bear, and the boar. The wolf is fast and works together as a team. The bear is extremely strong, and the boar uh, will, even when backed and facing certain death, will fight until the very end and try and take you with him. You know, hmm. so that there's sort of these kind of warrior animals, but the wolf is like universal. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that there was like a. I, I always, I've only read about movement from like. The, in the other direction, like from uh, where Iran is now into Europe, like I, th I believe what's believed about the god Odin was that he was a um, he was a chieftain from the steppes, I think, like way far east, and then he migrated to modern Norway. That's, that's what I hear about. Yeah, I mean, it, definitely, there's some Scythian roots at least. Mm -hmm. The Scythians, the yeah. Scythians, as the Greeks called them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you, no, but you're I saying mean, at least culture I mean, went the other a, way he's too. A wolf. That's a wolf cultist thing too. I mean, Odin, mm. Odin's wolves were the Ulfadin, you know, the wolf heads, the berserkers. You know, hmm. they were they yeah. were the wolf warriors of Odin. Fascinating. Um, so, so for you, like participating in like pagan rituals, it's kind of maybe symbolic of greater archetypes. Let's say that you yeah. see across cultures. Yeah, it is for me. I mean, like a lot of people have their specific sort of uh, tradition in regard to you know. Like I said, like a lot of people are Germanic pagans or um, something along those lines. And I um, I kind of see these, any kind of ritual is meant to sort of, the idea of a ritual is that, it, is that you basically do, you perform an act which has an effect on the cosmos. But mm -hmm. um, for me, you see well, the idea that a human being is a microcosm of the macrocosm. So, you know, you are the, the manifestation of divine right here and that the kind of universe and cosmos is also within you, you know. So ritual for me not only has this idea of affecting external, but is more of an internal effect. I, I feel like the kind of alchemical change, it's more of an alchemical change within or um, kind of intention um, that you can set within yourself. Uh, sacrifice being the idea that you can sacrifice the lower self to the higher self which is again actually interesting enough from uh the i think it's the havamal the, this one of the odinic texts where it's like nine days i hung on the tree sacrifice you know uh, sacrifice to odin myself to myself for me um and it's this idea that you know you sacrifice yourself to yourself for yourself you know that hmm. Um, so that for me is this, I, the, the idea of ritual is that actually you can kind of create a, a better, more powerful version of you. If you kind of utilizing that correctly, if you're, you know, you're not just looking at it as a, oh, I'm going to do this magical act and everything outside me is going to get better. You know, if you're going into it with that attitude, then, you know, you're going to come out of it fairly disappointed ultimately, but if you can mm -hmm. go into a any kind of ritual setting and go in thinking, well, I'm going to go in and, and I'm going to be what comes out changed or better or reinforced somehow you know it doesn't even need to be a change i mean it could just go into it feeling like you can come out with something for yourself you know rather than just 
going into it thinking, oh, I'm going to yeah make the world yeah. different. Yeah, you know, I, I've been re-appreciating, or maybe for the first time, really appreciating religious frameworks, if only for that. It's like very few people have the motivation to have that kind of discipline just to lose weight to look better. But if you look at, like, let's say MMA, the rise of Islamic uh, or, or Muslim fighters, you know, taking yeah. over, you know, especially, I mean, Dagestan, maybe their training methods are better, but also when you hear them speak about their training, it's like, it's a religious devotion, the way you know, pray five times a day. And like, man, I, I would love to believe in something that much that I would sacrifice everything because I, I felt it was so important more than my own sacrifice into that which is higher right i mean yeah <laughs> i mean that's the thing i mean and that is true that is what sets sets them apart in that regard is they they're doing something higher they're doing something more than just you know trying to win for themselves you know um mm -hmm. but yeah i mean that's at the basis of war yoga is this idea that you know the physical exercise isn't just about the physical exercise of getting stronger yourself yes it does that and that's great now and if that's what you want to do just the physical side fine that's great at least you're doing the physical side of it and then on the other side you can tie in sort of philosophical and spiritual elements and make it into a much more powerful vehicle than just making your physical body stronger you can make your uh mind stronger and your um sort of you know, the word spiritual gets thrown around a lot but you know your your spiritual self and spiritual being stronger as well you know that you can uh work on a a metaphysical level rather than just a physical level you know so that's yeah. kind of the basis of where it comes from yeah yeah i, I listened to, in that podcast episode you're speaking a little bit about gonzo journalism or your approach yeah. to like throwing yourself in <laughs> yeah i i you know it's something i found really i think is one of the benefits of social media along with many of the the negatives is that since you can see people usually when when you read their words also like there's like a i guess like a re-emphasis on ethos whereas prior to visual social media people can write whatever they want and you know right. maybe maybe it's like some fat guy in his basement where it's like yeah, now right. you could kind of see people it's like i'm not going to take tips on living a hard life from someone who doesn't look like they're fit <laughs> you know right yeah, that's an exercise that's true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. No, I mean, the thing that's the thing about social media, social media is a two edged sword. It's like, yes, it's awful. Yes, it, it reinforces some of the worst behaviors and worst ideals. But at the same time, uh, it allows you to connect with people doing stuff which is kind of interesting uh, mm -hmm. i wouldn't be able to do what i do without it ultimately but yeah you're right it adds an accountability in terms of uh somebody saying something um and it it kind of allows you to explore and it depends how you approach it i guess but it allows yeah. you to kind of like find discover things or find a way to connect with people and improve your own life but like i said it's, it's a double-edged sword there's a lot of yeah Awful. Although actually, just to contradict myself, I'm I'm no. Are you familiar with Bronze Age Pervert? Uh, I have heard of him. I've uh -huh. seen the cover of his book, but I've not read his book. I know there's lots of people who have read it. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of guys who actually write with some overlap, of, or actually quite a bit of overlap of what we're talking about, but they're completely anonymous. Like yeah. another one I'm thinking of is Rag Nationalist, who writes a lot about bodybuilding, but never I've shows his face. Too, yeah. So it's like um, there's kind of I, I think it's cowardly uh, to 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 not be able to back up your words, especially with controversial things. Um, that's, so there's that's something the, so grounding about seeing someone. Yeah, that's probably right. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, like um, you know, it, 
by putting your yourself there, you know, you you have to. Um, this accountability ultimately it means I can't just mm-hmm. say anything I want and just hide behind a facade for sure. I yeah. mean, it also makes you check what you're saying and double check and make sure that you know you really mean what you say and you know you're not just sort of putting out nonsense into the ether you know totally or putting out things being controversial for the sake of being controversial i mean sometimes you you know it's one of my friends it It was some he was quoting somebody else but the dark arts of social media you'll get a lot of these Mm -hmm. people who will just suddenly rise to this enormous followings because they're you know being edge lords and basically just trying to you know seem really edgy and controversial but ultimately that that will often um you know you if you play with dark arts so to speak then you're going to suffer the consequences you eventually you're going to have to pay for that so yeah you know yeah actually another person i meant to ask you about um are you familiar with jack donovan yes you, you know yeah, yeah, I've, I've actually read i've read the way of men uh, I mm-hmm. haven't read his other works. I know who he is, though. I've never talked because yeah, I know his most recent book is on spirituality, and I think he's also a Germanic pagan. Uh, I was just, I think actually he he's, he he practices a uh, his own uh, syncretic Indo-European thing. Mm-hmm. He came out of Germanic paganism at one point. Uh, he was definitely okay. at one point. Um, um yeah he he uh his recent book was uh kind of about that i think yeah i've haven't I think, read I've not yet. read it i don't know but i know people who have read it and i've heard about it from through others well yeah i had him on the podcast i think uh, a little bit before that book came out so uh, oh, i cool. get to discuss it yeah um so what's next with wargo you're gonna you're gonna focus on the greek side of things and yeah then- so i'm gonna keep doing the the indian and iranian stuff um mm-hmm. you know i do workshops I've, I've you know um in indian material at the moment um i'm still going to refine the iranian uh, exercises before i do any anything with that in terms of workshops or teaching that mm-hmm. um but um i'm going to keep doing that i'm going to keep doing my workshops and then i'm also yeah i'm going to be start to explore into the greek material which is kind cool. of exciting for me i'm half greek um and so uh, that's always a lot of my uh sort of personal reading and an interest is always laying in that culture you know because it's half my culture it's my mother's side um yeah. so um i'm dipping into the greek material uh greek philosophy and the uh heavy sports athletic tradition um so yeah that's it really cool. i mean i'm gonna just keep doing what i'm doing and keep expanding on it yeah because you teach mma as well i teach you... so i teach uh no i teach muay thai um, okay i have you've seen a few posts recently me doing pancreatium which is basically ancient i saw Greek, the pancreatium so that's part of my takedown. part of my uh research pro process now uh is to try mm-hmm. and uh reconstruct a little bit and also learn uh from others who've been doing reconstruction um of ancient pancration uh, yeah. and and boxing and wrestling and so on um but i teach muay thai i do jiu-jitsu um i'm uh, i train in both uh, gi jiu-jitsu and no gi jiu-jitsu which i do 10th planet system of no gi cool um so uh yeah and then you know i've always been interested in other martial arts so i always kind of mess around i i also teach bare knuckle old english bare knuckle boxing um although i tend to teach that as sort of seminars where i get invited to go uh-huh. and do a 
Yeah, how'd you get into that? Oh, so, I mean, I, I have always been fascinated um, since I was a teenager in the idea of the stuff that people used, you know, especially like that's just before the resurgence of modern bare knuckle, but I was fascinated mm-hmm. that people fought under this completely different boxing rule set with no gloves. Mm-hmm. And I just found that incredibly interesting. And so I started to, over the years, I've kind of read all the ancient, all the old English boxing treatises, work of a guy called Pier, uh, Pierce Egan, who was probably the first sports journalist he wrote in the hmm. 18, early 1800s about boxing. And it's full of this really amazing language about uncorking the claret, meaning kind of making his nose bleed and stuff. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of funny, like kind of analogies and stuff. And the way he wrote was very interesting, kind of quirky, even for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I started to reconstruct some of the techniques which are just not necessarily um, familiar to most modern uh, boxers or people interested in it because, um, you know, you have to align your hands differently and your body differently. It also allowed for all sorts of throws. So actually some of the champions of England in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries were actually pure wrestlers. So you can sometimes get a pure wrestler in and fight a pure boxer and the pure wrestler was allowed to do certain things because you could do all the stand-up grappling. It was allowed. You can, I mean, you could, you could literally, you know, pile drive someone if you wanted huh. to. You know. <laughs> Essentially, once the rounds ended when someone hit the ground and there was unlimited huh. rounds and unlimited time. And so, huh. so you know, but by throw or right, knockdown, it was treated. As yeah, same. yeah, right. A knockdown or or a throw. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of kind of the idea. A lot of rounds ended with what was called the cross buttock, which is essentially a throw across the buttock, and so you'd land heavily on top of the person. So you'd throw them and land on top of them as hard as you could. Huh. Um, Interesting. So, so I I basically tried uh, for years. I've been sort of working on that, reconstructing it. Um, I worked. Um, a lot of it on my own and also from a, uh, a friend of mine called Dan Carnegie, who's been doing that for years. He's based in Philadelphia and um, I might go see him this year. Actually. Um, but he, 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 he's written about it too. So like I've, I've reconstructed myself, but by standing on the shoulders of some giants, you know? Uh-huh. So. Yeah. Cause you know, with the, the modern bare knuckle FC, I can see the appeal. It's like the appeal of the early UFCs where, where people who maybe don't really appreciate boxing. This is not to judge it too much, but like yeah. it's just like yeah, extra yeah, yeah. carnage in yeah. not the highest level boxing, of course. Yeah. But I, if it was, if, if they included more pancreation type rules where throws were allowed, it seems yeah. like not having gloves is ideal for that because you could actually wrestle right. the way. So, yeah, you, you, what... you can make it Greco with punching, basically. Yeah, right. So, I mean, ultimately there was like, uh, there's various sets of rules of the time. The first set of rules written with the Broughton rules in like 1750s. Uh, and he, they were only really for his particular, what he called his amphitheater, which is his boxing hmm. arena uh, in London. Um, but they were generally adopted across the board. And then the next set of rules is in like the 1820s, which was the London prize ring rules. So they're sometimes called the old rules. Um, but yeah, they allow for all that stuff, you know, hmm. Uh, and then and Queensbury before. was like in the early 1900s. No, Queensbury was was uh, the 1860s originally, okay. not necessarily adopted for the professional fighting. Um, prize fights outside were illegal only because uh, it was lots to do with Victorian sensibilities and trying to get factory workers to be good cogs in the machine rather than going mm. out for days on end to go and enjoy. <laughs> sort of heavy sports and fighting out in the countryside, what they call fancy sports at the time, actually. Hmm. Um, <laughs> and then, um, 
yeah so so it was kind of illegal but mostly because it was a gathering of people in a random part of the countryside and they didn't like it so they'd send out the local magistrates to go and disperse the crowds um hmm. real festival atmosphere with kind of you know raucous things going on out around the kind of the idea of the fight but Queensbury rules uh, started to take over because, um, you know, they, it was it was more regulated in terms of time. It was better for gambling. Um, mm. Gloves made it so you couldn't actually grapple in the same way. So you had to just box. Like the thing is, is the boxing glove, early boxing gloves are like, they look like what we consider to be like cold weather mittens today. You know, <laughs> they were just like four ounce, not even like these little tiny little things. All they did was stop your fingers opening up to grab mm. uh, and the actually the ironic thing is that the queensbury rules really started being adopted as the proper set of rules because of uh a guy called john o'sullivan who was the boston strongboy an american boxer mm -hmm. he was the last bare knuckle champion he had the last ever bare knuckle title fight was in 1889 uh in hattiesburg mississippi and it was john l sullivan the boston strong boy and he beat jake kilrain but because he hated grappling and he was a puncher he ultimately brought in those little gloves more and more he ultimately the last bare knuckle champion of the world really was the reason that it really went across to gloves because he didn't like grappling huh so it's kind of interesting that the death knell for bare knuckle of that old star was actually a bare knuckle boxer who liked glove boxing better. That's fascinating. Because like, I think that was around when catch wrestling probably devolved into modern pro wrestling where they were mostly yeah, shows. Yeah, a few, a few years. I mean, that really started evolving in the 20s when it was like, mm -hmm. oh, we want to be entertained rather than watching two guys on the ground for extended periods of time, not yeah. doing very much as far as the crowds were, you know? Yeah. Interesting. Well, it would be really fascinating to see because I saw the, the pancreation takedown, I think you posted some time ago. It'd be really f fascinating to see if there's a resurgence of these ancient techniques That'd in be MMA cool, that right? just have been forgotten, right? Like, yeah. uh, like the calf kick just came about a few years ago. Is that yeah. You could have done that any time, but someone just remembered that you could do that in you MMA. You could do that, right. Right. Yeah, yeah. What's it they and say? Actually, there's nothing new under the sun, right? I mean, yeah. There's probably a whole host of techniques that have been forgotten about that would be super effective, yeah. especially by the first adopters, maybe. Yeah, right, right. And yeah. then, then what will happen is someone will find the counter to those techniques, but then maybe that yeah. counter existed too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I saw uh, Bas Rutten was trying to get the clothesline, like the the, the <laughs> he was just basically trying to throw his arm like a, a Muay Thai kick, but it didn't yeah. catch on. I thought it was going to no, catch on. No. But it didn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Man. All I know about Bass Rutten is I remember his videos uh, where he used to show people how to do bar fighting. That was yeah, I, I, I watched that in high school. Bar and the stool. <laughs> or like uh, you should always uh, crack the, the, the whiskey glass first. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I remember these. Never. Hopefully we'll never ever use them. But They are right. Um, now I remember those. Oh, Bass. Yeah. But now he's doing well, karate combat, right? He's promoting karate combat. That's just... I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Karate combat is like a new, it's a new tournament. It's like karate MMA. It's good. It's pretty good. It's pretty cool. cool. It's pretty yeah, I would love to see more more rule sets than just the standard MMA ones. Like whether it's yeah. creation rules or something like that. I think very yeah, interesting. Yeah, be really cool. Things It'd be out. really cool. I don't yeah. think the uh, the naked Greek athletics will ever. Get <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, probably not. Uh, that <laughs> awesome. Well, Tom, this was really fun speaking with you. Uh, Great glad we got speaking to do this. Too. Thank you. Yeah. For 
very looking forward to I'm, I'm almost done with uh the second war yoga book i'm very oh, much awesome. looking forward to the the third thanks one reading, whenever yeah, it comes I really out appreciate that. yeah for sure awesome yeah well thanks again take care thank you very much